you're on with Lauren Zayu for Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, a show about what you say, how you say it, and what to do after it's said. We'll talk about communications and messaging blunders, successes, distractions, and what all of it means for you. Join me for a crash course in what you need to know in politics and issues driving the 2020 elections. Hello and welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. I'm your host, Lauren Zayu. This summer, in the wake of a global pandemic, people took to the streets in cities across the world to protest the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Armand Arbery, Elijah McClain, and so many other Black people whose deaths were indicative of a larger problem in our history. Today, we are going to be talking about the history of criminalizing Blackness and Black people, and I can't think of anyone else I've had more conversations on this topic with. Our guest today, Reverend Elijah Zayu, was born in Monrovia, Liberia, West Africa, and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Elijah attended Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a BA in history. From there, he went on to receive his master's in divinity from the University of Chicago and is currently pursuing a PhD at Howard University in African and African-American history. Elijah serves as associate pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and is a contributing writer on issues of race, religion, and pop culture. I'm excited to welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, Reverend Elijah Zayu. Hey, Lauren. It's so great to get to be with you uh, today. I'm so excited about the podcast, and I'm so excited to get to be a special guest on the show. We are honored to have you as well. Uh, Taking it from the top, the beginning of our segment is called School and Life. Um, And while I think it might be a little obvious how we know each other, I definitely think we should go ahead and let people know. Um, So Elijah and I have been married for four years. Four years now. Yes. Four years. Um, So we got married in June 2016 uh, in my hometown of Dallas, Texas. Um, We've been together for eight years. Exactly. Of course, yeah. Um, so uh, when I say that we've had been having these conversations for a long time, we really have. Uh, I met Elijah when he was in his second year of divinity school at U Chicago, and I was a junior at Spelman College. Um, and we've been having these conversations, honestly, as an integral part of our relationship for that entire time frame. Um, I mean, I mean, just to put you know a circle on it, one of the first. Uh, weekends that we met and were texting each other was actually uh, Barack Obama's uh, second uh, second win of election night. I was in Chicago at uh, at um, at at a McCormick Theater where they were having the election night party, victory party, and that's when we began texting. So it goes all the way back, <laughs> second term Barack Obama. It does. It does. That is true. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's been a major part of our relationship and a lot of how we bonded was conversations on being a Black person in America and what that's looked like historically, some of the ways that it's changed, some of the ways that it hasn't. Um, and so ultimately, I think there's there's literally no one else I would want to have this conversation with, uh, on, is particularly in a way that is unfiltered, right? Um, so if we kind of want to take it from there, Elijah, if you could give us a little more insight into your schooling, into what you're studying, and sort of the ways that that definitely translates directly to our current events. 
Yeah. Uh, once again, I want to thank you, Lauren, for having me. Um, like I said, I'm super excited about the work that you're doing with the show. First of all, I think it's so important um, that folks get to hear from your brilliant insights, um, your thoughtfulness. And like you said, you've been writing other people's words, but your words are equally as profound uh, and necessary during this time. So uh, like Lauren said, um, I'm an immigrant to this country. I was born in Liberia, West Africa. My family immigrated here um, during our civil war. I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And it was really my time in Baton Rouge that I got a you know organic experience um, with the question of race, right? You know, my parents being West Africans didn't fully understand all of the racial dynamics in the US. And so we grew up having to learn very quickly what it meant to be a black person um, and to make sense that just because white folks were nice to you, it didn't mean that they respected your humanity or saw you as a full person. And so a lot of my early years of school and education um, was about that uh, formative learning. And so when I went to college, I wanted to take what I'd been living to study it more, uh, more, more, more at a deep level. So uh, I went to Morehouse, which was an excellent place to go to school. Um, and I studied history at Morehouse from some of the great pioneers of black history, right? Um, and to be on those grounds, you know, as a Spelman graduate as well, what it's like to be on those grounds, to have conversations with people like Andrew Young, John Lewis before he passed, uh, C.T. Vivian before he passed. Um, and it was just a really great place to learn um, about all of the depths and the riches and the contributions of Black history. And so I continued my studies at the University of Chicago. And again, it was another powerful experience to be in the city of Chicago, the city of Jesse Jackson, um, the city of Harold Washington, you know, the city of Jeremiah Wright, the city of Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. Yeah. Uh, and to learn again about the black experience and the black political experience to see it up front while also studying at a place that was a great place to go to school, but had a really contentious relationship with the neighborhood around it, right? And didn't really value all of the black people and the black history that was in the, in the, the neighborhoods that surrounded the University of Chicago. And so when we moved to Washington, DC, it was only natural to keep studying, to keep asking questions about how black folks were making this place um, their home despite all of the turmoil, all, all of the terror, um, all of the violence that we've experienced. And so that's part of what took me to Howard University, um, the Mecca, as they call it, um, to study Black history there, to study the story of Africans and African-Americans um, as we have tried um, to really make this place a place that's more just, a place uh, that's more free, a place that's more fair, um, and that's what my research, my work, my ministry, my writing is all about. It's all about trying to get people to see that until we reckon with the brutal past of our history, there can't be no true and honest way forward. And so that's where all of my research, uh, academic, professional, political experience overlap with one another. Thank you for that. That's actually, I think, really helpful 
for framing this conversation as well, because we also know that historically the black church has played such a major role um, in the organizing of black people, in the pushing um, for so much of our freedom, even in what we know is a complicated relationship between Christianity and blackness often at times. Um, and so as we hear a lot of the rhetoric and messaging around black lives and black lives matter uh, here, how do you feel like the black church has laid some of that groundwork thus far? And how do you feel like they're contributing to the conversation right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that I love about uh, the historic black church movement, right? And many black theologians and black historians talk about this as the black church movement being one of the first freedom movements in the United States of America. So if you go back to the founding of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME, back in 1787, really, which is when Richard Allen and Absalom Jones um, launched um, their sort of effort to try to create this independent Black church movement, you have that being the foundation of the Black freedom movement. Why? Because these people we're saying that we believe that we are equal before the eyes of God and we are going to create institutions that reflect that equality and that dignity. And so many of my favorite historians and writers talk about the black church movement being a freedom movement. And of course we know all throughout the, the 19th century that some of our most uh, profound and instrumental political leaders were religious leaders, right? We know that Nat Turner, right, um, was a slave preacher. We know that Denmark Vesey was one of the founders of the church that would go on to become Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We know that Frederick Douglass often spoke in churches all around the country and especially along the East Coast that he preached a message of freedom and equality. And so uh, the Black church historically uh, has played a tremendous role in the Black freedom movement. And I think um, that even when you take the 1960s and even some of the work that a new generation of Black church leaders are taking part in, they're trying to still play a part in that role. It's just that our position has changed because there are some things that the Black church now has to defer to the rest of the culture to because um, you could say in many ways that there are some theological places that we need to catch up to. Um, and so uh, Black women in particular, uh, Black queer people are really pushing the church in some necessary and important ways to not just center uh, the Black hetero male experience, but to say, look, if Black lives matter, this is the theological truth that you believe, then um, Black women's lives have to matter. Black gay lives have to matter. Black trans lives have to matter. And they're really pushing us to step up our game and make sure that we're consistent with our own history and our own uh, tradition, which is important. Uh, that definitely is important. Um, and we can also acknowledge that historically, uh, the church has been a haven in, in some regards, right? We know, um, I'm thinking about a Bloody Sunday, right? Where like the church is where they run to after they've been attacked, right? I'm thinking about um, other instances where like the church has been a refuge. And I, I, I completely echo your sentiment that if we're going to be the, the sanctuary, right? The safe haven, the, the 
place of refuge as as people of faith, then we have to value all the lives of, of people who need that safe haven. Um, and so I definitely understand that that perspective. But I'm wondering as a as a young minister, seeing people uh, leading this movement across multiple disciplines, like as an interdisciplinary person yourself, right? Do you feel like um, the conversation around our freedom or around liberation has been comprehensive or do you feel like it's been stifled uh, by people's desire for it to come from a particular place? Does that question make sense? Yeah, the, the question certainly makes sense. And I would say that the that if you just take Black Lives Matter <laughs> as a statement, right? This is probably the most profound theological statement that has ever been made, right? Mm -hmm. The reason I say this is because you take the genius of what those three Black women came up with, right? In the midst of all of this Black death, in the midst of all of this violence, of all of this police brutality, they made the statement that draws a clear line in the sand, theologically, politically, socially. Black lives matter. And one of the things that you have to think about is for someone to disagree with that statement, to say, no, Black lives do not matter, is to disagree with the humanity of millions of Black folk and our ancestors. Yeah. Right? And so the leadership that they have exerted is particularly important because, like I said, they challenged even the church, which began as a freedom movement, which began in protest and was tested in adversity, as Gay Ward Wilmore likes to say, is now being challenged to say, well, how are we continuing to move forward the protest movement? How are we continuing to show that all of these other Black lives and Black people, how do they matter? How are we adjusting our polities? How are we adjusting our spiritual practices? Uh, how are we adjusting our relationship to the world? So I think that the place that the movement is being led from um, is precisely where it should be led from. And it should be a challenge as it is to the church to continue to uh, redefine ourselves in light of how they are pushing the church. Definitely, definitely. Okay. Um, somewhat moving into a conversation about your current studies, right? So you're currently studying African and African-American history at Howard University, but we also know that so much history, it feels like is happening around us. Um, and so what does it look like to be uh, in an academic space um, when it feels like, for lack of a better phrase, the the movement is outside of your, your space. One, because we know that uh, colleges aren't physically on campus right now, but we also um, are acknowledging that this is the same tension that was felt uh, during the civil rights movement, right? That you've got these houses of deep black intellect and people with so much to contribute, but academia can also seem like an ivory tower away from away from the struggle and away from the fight. And so how have you somewhat navigated that balance, um, if, if at all? Yeah, uh, that's another really good question. I think um, one of the things I started to feel this summer as everything went down was that um, we needed to historicize some of the struggles that we were going through, right? Because um, so many people uh, we're becoming awakened to the political and social reality for the first time. And so, in fact, my classmates and I at Howard University um, started to do some work and they did some incredible work 
where they developed um, a toolkit um, okay. for activists to understand the relationship between our contemporary moment and the historical one. Um, building off of that, something else that I was able to do um, was uh, I taught a class this summer to peers and friends and the community um, about the relevance of African and African-American history right now. One of the beautiful things about this moment is that people from all walks of life have now wanted to know, wait a second, what is actually the story of Black folk in this country? And why has a comprehensive story not been told? And so in a way, the study of African and African-American history, the study of Black history is an act of activism itself, right? And that's one of the ways that we've been able to participate in the movement, right? Is to say that we come from a people who have been resisting violence their entire time here. We yeah. come from a people who had great civilizations before they came to this country. And we come from a people who helped to make this civilization what it is today. These people had skills, these people had talents, and even though their condition was one of enslavement, they still did things to make this the place that it is. And part of what Black history calls for in this moment is to reckon with it and to show how even more egregious it is that Black folk are being treated this way. How do you treat the people who built this country in a way that has no value for their life? How do you treat the people who built the White House and built the Capitol and laid the stones on the streets that we walk and picked the cotton, grew the tobacco and grew the sugar and grew the indigo as though their lives don't matter? This is part of what is outrageous about the current social movement and what Black history provides is to say, look, this is the intellectual legacy of Black folk. Yeah. This is what we did. This is what we went through. This is how we contributed. This is why, and you say this at the introduction of your podcast, why you're patriotic. This is why this is our country too. Yeah. We helped to build this country with our blood, with our sweat, with our tears. And so our admonition that we need to be treated equal isn't rooted in something faulty. It's rooted in actually our story of what we have done for this place. Amen. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> agree. I, uh, I definitely uh, agree on that. Well, I kind of want to, uh, I guess, move us along or transition us into is our hold up segment. Um, where we give life to something that you're concerned no one is talking about or you, something you wish was given more attention. Um, and so while I've been asking the questions thus far, Reverend Zayu, is there anything that um, you feel like should be given more light and more weight in this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, it's actually related to what we we're talking about before, but very few people know this. Um, this past week, um, President Trump held a conference at the White House on patriotic education, where he brought together a bunch of people to talk about why the 1619 project was a bad project, why we don't need to study slavery 
uh, in this country, why we don't need to really study the racial violence, how all of that is anti-American. And, and some people have written about it, but not enough people know about it. And one of the reasons I'm concerned, obviously, is as a historian, as a student of Black history, is I think that he precisely is doing further violence, right, by trying to say, look, we don't need to think about the origins of the country in that way, right? The narrative that we have is a perfect narrative. Don't tamper with that narrative. And part of the question that we have to raise is why? Yeah. Why shouldn't we actually go back and address how this country was founded? Why shouldn't we go back and address all of the legacy and connection to slavery? Why shouldn't we go back and address the fact that the Constitution, a big portion of it, compromised on the bodies of Black folk who were predominantly in the South, and that some of the political power that the South had up until the Civil War was because they counted those Black folk, but then didn't fully give them any rights at all, right? This is all relevant to our political problems today. This is all relevant to our social problems today in history and how we teach it and how we teach the origins of this country matter for how we understand the current political moment, right? How we think about racial violence, how we think about police brutality, how we think about the history of so many of these institutions, especially the inst the institutions of prisons and the rise of mass incarceration, right? And so I don't think enough people are paying attention to the fact that the current president is really upset at the 1619 Project. And it's not uh, just about his personal quirks, but that, but, that, but that the issue that he has with it is one that's fundamental to where we are right now in the country. Um, and so I want more people to actually um, go read the 1619 Project or listen to that because I think it's brilliant the way that Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, you know, retells the story about America and about the founding of America and the role, the central role that the institution of slavery played for most institutions in this country for well over 250 years. Um, and I want folks to understand, like I said earlier, that Black history itself is a tool of activism because it's the truth of where we come from. There's a quote that I like that says, tales of hunting will glorify hunters until the lioness becomes her own uh, historian, right? And so much of the history that we have and the history that someone like President Trump is trying to promote is a history that glorifies the hunters, but it doesn't tell you about all of the resistance efforts, that there were over 250 resistance attempts during slavery of 10 or more people that occurred in the United States of America. It doesn't tell you about all of the subtle forms of resistance, of people breaking place, of people running away, of people planning and plotting for a very long time, how they would struggle to undermine the system of racial violence. It doesn't tell you about all of the women who did many things in droves who were organizing and writing pamphlets and speeches, trying to ensure that the women's rights movement included black women in the 19th century. And so um, I think that history itself is a battlefield and the president knows that. And I think that's why he's subtly trying to undermine it. Um, yeah, I definitely agree. And I actually wanna spend a little time there, particularly on the notion of the way we teach our history adding to violence 
um, a lot of the language that America or uh, white supremacy has used to describe our history. Uh, in the in addition, to when you erase communities of color from that conversation, you often erase like what happened to them over the course of the great nation becoming right. So when we're having conversations about like manifest destiny, right, the idea that like God wanted uh, America to to reach from sea to shining sea. Um, completely eradicates the notion that like there were people who lived there and there were lives that hundreds of thousands of lives that were sacrificed um, for, for this vision that came to be, right? Or when we have conversations around the constitution and the great founding fathers and the forethought they had, well, a lot of their great forethought like erased the lives of black people who actively contribute to this nation becoming a democracy, right? And so when we talk about... Um, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, what we should be paying attention to in a moment like this, uh, the president is not alone in his desire to uh, erase uh, the uh, our contributions to history, but also acknowledging that what those contributions uh, are is in direct tension and direct contrast to who white to the narrative that white supremacy and white supremacists have crafted for themselves. Absolutely. Because if they were to acknowledge our full presence and contributions to this society, they would not act as though it's just white people that matter in this country. Right. right. Which is goes back to the brilliance of the black lives matter movement. It's an all encompassing movement because what it says is that America isn't just a white nation. Right. Well, many people might, you know, ostensibly agree with that. In practice, it feels like this is the thing we're butting up against, that those of us who are Black, those of us who are immigrants, those of us who are queer, those of us who are poor, that we contributed to this country, that the founding ideals of this country need to be lived and in order for it to uh, and, and in order for us to understand why they haven't been fully lived we have to go back to the circumstances of their creation to fully understand what was going on mm -hmm. so one of the things that nicole hannah jones helps us to understand in the 1619 project for example is that thomas jefferson the desk that he wrote the declaration of independence on was assembled by an enslaved young man that he brought with him to Philadelphia. Yeah. This is the paradox of liberty that we're talking about. This is a contradiction. You're writing about freedom on a desk that's been assembled by someone who's unfree. Yeah. Back in Charlottesville, you got 600 enslaved people on your plantation. And then this gathering, especially your Virginia planters who were instrumental in the creation of this country, they're all slaveholders. Yeah. That this is the place that we have to start. This is the place that we have to begin. And so people got really upset because Nicole Hannah Jones called uh, the American Revolution a slaveholders' rebellion. And right. even some good white historians said, "Oh, she's she's stretching too much. It's really not that serious." But many of these people were slaveholders. Yes, and they were rebelling. <laughs> and Britain was moving at a time when they were trying to control 
uh, and bring an end to the slave trade, not necessarily for, for benevolent reasons, but they were still trying to do it. And this was a part of the issue that pushed them there. And so um, that type of reckoning with the history would push many people to say, wait a second, perhaps if that's how we started, can we at least acknowledge that starting that way is a problem? Yeah. Can we at least acknowledge that the grievances that Black folk have are legitimate, mm. right? And, and if we were to acknowledge that, then we would create new institutions and modify and reform existing institutions in a way that acknowledged that truth and that fact about our history that's recorded in the primary sources and even words of the founders. And so um, it's definitely a battlefield um, and it's definitely a place that requires our attention. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I am really rich more than anything else. Uh, and keeping that in mind, because I think we're sort of organically arriving here as we transition into I ain't sorry, right? Which is something that you are uh, unapologetic about, whether personally, professionally, um, what would that look like for you? That's another great question. For me, the thing that I am not sorry about based off of my years of studying Black folk and studying this country Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, what I'm not sorry about is the fact that I think uh, that Black folks are the perfectors of this democracy. I think much of what is good about this country was made by Black folk. And I think that it is a travesty that Black folk are not acknowledged for our collective genius, for our collective courage, for our moral imagination, for our political imagination, for our spiritual imagination, for our musical genius, for our literary genius. I am absolutely unapologetic that I think that Black folk are the great gift to this country. And I think that it's about time this country recognized that. Moreover, I think that Black women in particular are an even greater gift to this country. I think that even in black fields, we understudy and undercredit black women. I think one of the things that we don't think about enough is that if you look, for example, at 50 states of this country yeah. and a hundred United States senators, the very few of those people in the history of this country have been black women. We have had no black women governors of any state. Stacey Abrams came very close, but she didn't She's win because, because of voter suppression, because they stole the election. Yes. So for me, another thing we have to reckon with as a country is, are you saying that no black women, woman is talented enough to be a governor of a state? Are you saying that only what three black women have been talented enough to be United States senators. Are you saying that no black woman is capable of governing this society? So part of the reason I'm unapologetic about the gifts and talents of black folk is it it's about time that black folk have power across every institution in this country. Black women are talented enough, have been talented enough, have been brilliant enough, have been courageous enough that they should be the ones 
leading us. And many, many, many more people need to acknowledge that. And so uh, I'm 100% committed to the idea that we need um, way, way more Black women in particular in positions of power and leadership across the institutions in this society. That's uh, that's really good. I kind of want to sit there for a little bit, mainly under the idea that like the reason Black people have made the contributions that we have, in addition to being exceptional, is that we are pushing this country to be who they say that they are, right? Um, and so I, it's not a... I guess to me, it's not a shock, right? To, to read a document like the constitution, to read a document like the Declaration of Independence and be inspired enough to say, this should be more expansive. This should be more inclusive. We should be invested in making this table longer and wider as opposed to um, even like putting brown people around in a very exclusive table. Like, no, this is, this is something for everyone and we're gonna fight for it to be that, right? And it's interesting because it's almost like a, attention, right? It's one thing to be the great nation. And it's another thing to be actively trying to be a better nation. Right. And I feel like black people are calling America to be the latter. And there's the notion that that can be undemocratic or anti-patriotic when in reality, like I, all I'm asking you to be is who you told me that you were. Right. And so if, if that's a problem, then some, somebody's got to misread on what's happening exactly. to adjust for. Um, and so I think that's a, a great thing to be unapologetic about. And in addition to black women being drastically and vastly underrepresented in regards to elected office in the history of our country and currently, I think there's so much um, at stake there, that particularly when you look under at, at the underside of that, right? So in addition to being underrepresented in elected office, we know that black women show up and vote and actively participate in the electoral process, unlike any other demographic in the country, right? Exactly. Um, I believe it was uh, Dr. Melissa Harris Perry who said that the only places globally that are out uh, paced by black women in regards to voting are in countries where they criminalize uh, you not voting. So we we vote like it's illegal when it's legal, mm -hmm. right? And so like there is um there is something to be said there to be the people actively pushing candidates and actively organizing at local and state levels and still not be um, represented in regards to the actual leadership. No, which is why I think we absolutely need a complete sea change, right, um, in how we relate to Black women at the social level, at the professional level, and at the political level, right? Because it's a known fact, right, that Black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party, right? It's a known flat fact that, like, Black women helped to push, you know, President Obama um, to get elected, right, twice, right? But even before that, what we have to go back to is you have Fannie Lou Hamer and the Miss Democratic Freedom Party, right? Yeah. Without the challenge that she poses at the Democratic Convention in 1968, mm -hmm. right, you don't get, a, you don't really get the Democratic Party right to the left in the way that it did. Mm -hmm. You have Shirley Chisholm running for president, but not being respected running for president. Right. You don't really get a Barack Obama, right, without a Shirley Chisholm. And one of the things that we, again, don't fully do is we don't properly credit the role that Black women have played. And like you said, this 
democratic possibility. So, for example, we go back all the way back to Ida B. Wells Barnett, right? What is, what is Ida B. Wells writing about? She's a journalist. She's calling attention to all these folks to say, I don't know if y'all know this, but thousands of black folk are getting lynched in the South. Yeah, That's what she dedicates her whole career to writing about. It's from her writings that people then start to pay attention. Like, wait a second. We think lynching is a problem in this country. You know, so black women have been a part of the expansive democratic protest tradition in this country. Um, and I think that one of our tasks um, even as black men, right, is to stand in solidarity with black women and to um, and to stand behind black women, right? To say that we want to be led by black women, where this country is missing out on the moral and political imagination of black women being formalized. You y'all have always contributed it, but we haven't formalized it in the way that we need to formalize it. Um, and so, so I agree with you. I appreciate that. Um, we're going to move into our, uh, I guess, kind of penultimate segment called uh, um, Drunken Love, right? Where uh, I want to give space for you to, uh, one, talk about something that you wish you had gotten in earlier in the show. Uh, but also um, let us know the drink of your choice that you're joining us with today uh, as you go ahead and make make this decision. So it's something you're completely consumed by uh, and maybe I wish you had gotten a chance to say earlier. Hmm. The thing that I have been completely consumed by lately is um, Wale's music. I feel like, uh, you notice about me, I'm a big Drake fan. Uh, but in addition to being a big Drake fan, I've just become a big Wale fan. And I feel like he's so underrated as an artist. I feel like he's talking about real stuff. I feel like, um, you know, he is doing the best he can as a rapper, trying to be an ally. Um, and I just feel like everybody needs to be out here listening to more <laughs> Wale um, as an artist. Um, as you know, I've been listening to like all of his albums on like repeat. I, I ran to one of them uh, this morning, um, and I just really cannot get enough of Wale's music. He's talking about being a black man in therapy, you know, talking about sue me, I'm rooting for everybody black. He's talking about black girl magic, right? I think he's like, I think he actually gives us uh, somewhat, somewhat, right, of a model of like how to be of black male in solidarity with black women. And I think he's a great rapper and he makes dope music. So I just feel like I've been consumed by Wale's music. Um, and then what I'm drinking, um, I have here some pineapple and uh, rum, um, you know, because uh, even though summer is officially over, uh, I'm still carrying the spirit of summer with me and hoping to be on a beach at some point soon. Um, so Wale and rum and pineapples, um, or what I'm drunk in love with right now. All of that sounds great. Um, Elijah, I have enjoyed you immensely today. Uh, this has been so much fun uh, to, to get to overlap in this way and bring both of our loves together. In the event that people are interested in finding you or hearing from you, how are some ways that people can reach out? Yeah, uh, well, again, thank you for uh, having me. It's been a, my honor to be on the show. I wish you 
all the best. I think you're doing really important work um, by helping to frame the political conversation. I think that part of what we're missing, right, is our perspective on the politics, right? And so one of the things that I think you're doing really well is that politics isn't reserved for just the people who hold political office, right? It's not reserved for even uh, white people or rich people, but that we, especially as like young black millennials, um, that we should play a role in this too, that our voice needs to be respected, that this is our country too, that it's not just our ancestors that contribute, but that we contribute, me and you contribute, our friends contribute, our colleagues, our peers, we all contribute to this place. And so because of that, we should have a full say. So I think it's important um, that you're uh, leading the conversation in that. Um, what I would say, if folks want to reach out to me, um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, you just put my name in. Uh, um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, uh, my name. Um, and then I'm also on Medium. I write on Medium. Um, my name is there as well. And so feel free to reach out on any of those uh, platforms and support the work um, where we're just trying to you know, be honest about uh, the contributions of Black folk, um, about our talents, about our brilliance, and that the society will be a better society if it acknowledges that and if it works towards repairing the violence and offering um, repair for that violence um, and restructuring our institutions to make it more inclusive, more just, more fair, um, more equal. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you for your time today. This has been really great. And I hope we get a chance to have you back at some point. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. And that wraps this episode of Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. If you're interested in seeing more, you can follow the Lauren Zayu YouTube channel. You can also reach out uh, with at Lauren Zayu on Twitter and at Lauren Zayu on Instagram. And I hope uh, that all of you enjoyed this and will continue with us on this journey. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning in to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered with host Lauren Zayu and music by Lighthouse Productions. For more information on Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, or to review today's episode, please follow at Lauren Zayu on Twitter and Instagram or subscribe to the Lauren Zayu YouTube channel.